When I was a young boy, I loved making bows and arrows. I didn't have a dad who was quite as adept as Dan's dad, a little envy there. Um, but to make this amazing device that would hurl an arrow through the air at a faraway target, to me, at age eight or nine, was the most incredible thing. Although I must confess that my first bow was rather rudimentary in comparison. <clears throat> we had a big willow tree in the backyard, not good wood for a bow. Uh, I picked pieces that were already the diameter I wanted, not a good choice. I picked pieces that were already bent, because I figured that's what a bow looks like, and that didn't work. And then I stripped them of all their bark and I, uh, for quick construction and actually used a string of elastics put together as my string for the bow. So you can imagine, like I pulled and the, the willow like wilted and I, my arms weren't long enough to get any tension on the elastics. It was rather embarrassing. Which was probably a good thing because I hadn't learned anything about safety or how to aim at that point. But then over the weeks, I started to hone my craft, just did it again and again and again, more and more iterations, using drier, more rigid wood. I still remember going to the local home hardware and going to the little wood section, and they had little sticks of wood, and I'm bending them in the aisle, trying to figure out which one would be the right tension. And of course, I graduated to using, well, my mom's wool first, but that didn't work, and then to better and better strings. And finally got good at it. So good, if I can brag a little, that when I went to St. Helen's School at nine years old with a bow, I could shoot an arrow from one soccer field goalpost all the way to the other goalpost in that soccer field, the length of a soccer field. My bow had great tension. The feathered arrows, homemade, were flying pretty straight by then. I'd learned to to get the tension, you've got to kind of push forward and pull back at the same time to maximize the tension and how to raise the bow and aim in just the right direction. And I would play for hours, shoot five arrows, go to the other goalpost, shoot them back. There were no other kids around. Thank God there were no other kids around. But I'm shooting all of these arrows for hours and loved it, absolutely loved just the feeling of playing with a bow and arrow. You know, that archery moment, which you would know, Dan, if you had a bow, right? Where you've kind of drawn your bow back and you're, you're taking aim, those last-minute corrections, calibrating if you're outside the impacts of the wind, feeling the tension build in your fingers. I can't hold on too much longer before I let go. And then letting it go and whoosh, off it goes. Later in high school, I loved the sound of the arrow hitting the target in the school gym, that thump sound when you were shooting from much closer distances. And, of course, the feeling of hitting a bullseye right in the gold. And it was all just so good. Did anyone watch that video we sent out on Wednesday about that guy making a bow craft? Like, wow, hey, like you lived it, right? Like going through that process. So beautiful, a creation, all the way from a tree out in the woods, <laughs> choosing the right wood, harvested in the right way, with the right construction and the right ancillary materials, finding the right balance to lead, to yield this outstanding final product. And yet, the title of the video was, 
the birth of a weapon. So, in the beginning, God created a world where everything was good. And God saw all that he had made and said it was very good. But then, according to the Genesis account, ergo, songs of lament, humanity and all creation with it fell. Fell when Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command to stay away from that one tree, when they took the forbidden fruit because they wanted what they wanted. So they turned their backs on God instead of their faces. And in that move, that metaphorical, that very real move, enmity and hatred and violence entered into the world. So much so that within their very family, their son Cain, when he didn't get what he wanted, he envied his brother Abel because Abel got something that he was so desperately in want of himself. He, he got very angry, Cain did. And Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him, killed his brother and then the Lord God said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain had so lost his bearings in that fall, he forgot who he was, what it means to be a human being. He forgot that the right answer to his very own question, am I my brother's keeper, is yes. Of course you are. Of course we all are. Every human being populating this planet. And yet, every human being, even good people who go to church on Sundays, right? Part of that fall is echoing out into your life, into my life anyway. From the longbow, the schooner, and the violin, just a couple of paragraphs. Consider King Philip VI's formidable French army at Crecy in 1346, a crucial battle in the folly that came to be called the Hundred Years' War. Somewhere around 25,000 soldiers, self-described as the flower of French chivalry, had traveled with the king to the battlefield only to be hemmed in by ill-chosen terrain and mired in post-downpour mud and muck. Across the way was Edward III's greatly outnumbered invading English army, 2,500 men at arms, 3,000 light cavalry, cavalry 3,500 spearmen, and 5,000 long bowmen. And then consider those bowmen. King Edward, who knew what they could do, deployed them in an enfilade position, massed on two flanks of the front lines. And in preparation, he had brought along on his invasion 10,000 or so longbows and more than 3 million arrows bundled into 130,000 24-arrow sheaves. When things went well, each bowman could fire a sustained barrage of six arrows per minute, and sometimes one every five seconds. And there were many reports of a new arrow knocked, 
stringed, connected to the string, before the previous arrow had reached its target. And for the French across the battlefield, that meant a hail of 30,000 in-flight arrows every minute of the brief but bloody battle. Each arrow enough to kill a horse, pierce leather armor, and at short range, pierce chainmail. And for the French, the losses, of course, were catastrophic. More than 16,000 men died in just a few hours, and the rest fled, led by the king himself. In another battle, Gerald of Wales described a scene. He saw a man-at-arms struck by a Welsh arrow. The arrow penetrated his thigh, pierced the chain armor, went through his leather tunic, passed through his saddle, and cut deep into the horse below to kill it. Just one more. After the Hundred Years' War, a civil war broke out, and the English fought against the English, such as the way of sin. And in one battle alone, the Battle of Towton in Yorkshire in 1461, more than 50,000 men engaged in a battle in a, in a late winter March blizzard. Serried ranks of English longbowmen against serried ranks of English longbowmen. And when the day was almost over, was over, almost 30,000 of them had perished. And this is the line that just hit me. Dying the way so many of them had killed. So, yeah, so much beauty and utility in the creation of a bow, unleashing, unleashing so much death-dealing power, which is how sin, we don't talk about sin anymore, but this is evidence. History is evidence. This is how sin works. It corrupts good things and contorts them and breaks them and twists them into something used instead for evil. And it destroys in two directions, which that last part of that quote really picks up. Every time we destroy another person with our words, with our actions, with our bows, we destroy ourselves. We die in a way when we cause others to die in all the ways we cause people to die. It's, it's the human condition. So much potential in all of us and so much capacity to fall short. Which then got me thinking about what I learned in seminary about all the Greek and Hebrew words that come together to define the theology of sin, the doctrine of sin. And a lot of those words sort of gathered around the same kind of imagery that sin is missing the mark. Sin is all about having bad aim. And it infects all of life. Everything that was meant for good, not just our volitions and our wills and our actions as human beings, but everything in creation got kind of bent and twisted and corrupted. Even wood, why blame wood? <laughs> but God used certainly wood in a way that was corrupted. 
especially in this story of the longbow. The, the, the species of wood that we celebrated last week, the yew wood that is the source of Taxol, which is a cancer treatment drug, that same yew wood was the preferred wood of English longbow makers back in the medieval times because it just had the perfect uh, sort of levels of tension and compression. And so the sapwood would be along the front side of the bow and the heartwood along the inside of the bow. And so when you pulled back compression and tension, you could get the maximum force possible out of that small piece of wood. And those longbows back then drew to, yours drew to 20 pounds, your dad's to 50 pounds, and back then they drew to 150, 160 pounds. They didn't want to test them any further because they didn't want to break them. And when I shared that with Dan last week, he said, yeah, he read somewhere that they would dig up skeletons of these old archers and their whole bodies would be deformed because of what they actually ended up doing so repetitively. Their skeletons, everything deformed by the tension and power of those weapons. Which then got me to think, yeah, it's true. We shape our technologies and then they shape us. Same with sinful acts. I'm ashamed to confess. They remake me when I do them. Reform my life and slip a little bit more down that slope in an almost imperceptible way. That's how sin works. So much so that something as good as a bow for hunting and play and target work and just the fun of shooting an arrow could be turned into a weapon of mass destruction. Sin, destroying something so good as your human heart, meant for so much glory, but instead creates destructive cultural products. And history is our witness, right? It is all so predictable. For look, the wicked bend their bows, the psalmist writes. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. I always read the Psalms that I'm the upright in heart and the wicked are other people who are shooting at me. It's never me. It's never the other way around, but it is, right? People always say, oh, you're too hard on yourself calling yourself out. I'm not sure I'm too hard on myself calling myself out. Because my aim is off at times. And I do miss the mark in big ways, which rarely make it off of the pulpit. My memory fails. And we collectively, our memories as creators of things, fail. We forget that our ability to make things is made in the image of a God who made all things. The maker of trees is the one you're imaging when you're making a bow. And just that thought alone should have brought about a sense of sacredness to every bowman and every king that led every army with this weapon of mass destruction. And let, yet you forget that. We forget that. To, to create is a godlike and holy thing. And, and when you do it with reverence, it begets a wisdom that leads to a stewardship that is wise. 
when we create before God, just imagining that place, you, you hear a whisper, the voice of God saying, yes, it's good to build. Build this. Do it this way. Make it good. Make it really good. But be careful where you go with this because sin is always creeping at your door. You know this. Remember the story of Cain. Use this new thing in this new way. Aim it in this direction, but never in that direction. And if we listen to God at that moment and wield our bows in God-like ways, in ways that honor God, in accordance with God's will, then all those quotes about the Hundred Years' War and every other war where archery was so destructive, they never would have been told never would have happened. But we don't listen. Envy, in the case of Cain, and greed, in the case of the worldwide military production machine, nudges us to weaponize our creations. And anger, uh, it leads us to lose control in terms of where we aim. And, and then pride tells us we're always right as the one who's pulling the string back. One very important part of making arrows fly straight are those tail feathers that you see on all the arrows. To add feathers in archery talk is to fletch the arrow. The fletching creates wind drag, a disadvantage, but it also imparts spin, which makes the arrow stable in flight and more accurate. And it does all kinds of other things that are too complicated physics-wise to explain. But arrows are really, uh, the feathers, the fletching is really important for keeping the arrow going straight. So even those medieval arrows used for war, or any arrows that were shot, to truly be themselves, to be fully arrow in their natures, they needed to submit to nature's laws and the laws of aerodynamics that would have them wobbling if they didn't have their fletching in order to fly. So even though the feathers slowed the arrow down, it also enabled it to fly very straight and to go where it was meant to go. So you arrows, it does take so much time to have the discipline to read your Bible every day and engaging in spiritual practices, sometimes even more time than that. And all this effort to deepen your understanding of God, yes, it, let me tell you, yes, it can feel like a drag on your life. And yet, to not fletch my life and have these guides and these borders and boundaries is to leave it aimless. What I know about God through the Scriptures again and again and again stays me in the face of a buffeting headwind or sidewind. And my spiritually practiced life, limited as it is, it does center me. It keeps me turning around the axis that is this faith that Christ has borne in me, orbiting around God's being. 
So much so that even a person like this can hit the bullseye once in a while. There's a grain to the universe that is akin to aerodynamics and straight arrow shooting. There is a grain to the universe that is as real as the grain on any piece of wood you've ever held in your hand or looked at. There's a way to life, a way to emulate being human, and a way that calls out to you, whispers to you, says to you even now, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are the truest words you'll hear this morning. Yet, how many times have you preached them, John? And how many times have you failed to practice them, John? Actually following this way. I'll commit to it, and then I'll ignore it. I'll, I'll say yes, and then I won't practice what I know. I'll give faint acknowledgement. Yeah, that's good. We should follow God. Listen to what Jesus is saying. I'll get on that one day. I'll get serious about it one day. Because I really do have to live in denial about whether I'm getting on with it at all if I'm going to work in my job. But I mostly live in denial in terms of really get, really, daily, every moment, getting on with it. A lot of hypocrisy here. And sin, when it does that, in you, it, it keeps you from what you're made for. That's the sad irony I think I want. It distances us from the truth. It deceives us in terms of the impacts of our consequences so that it can self-perpetuate in that blind spot that we create. It, it denies the harm that it brings, the very real harm and killing that it brings. And sin is very cowardly in terms of owning what it does. It's all part of the deception. Back when those English longbows were first used by all of those people in that Christian, highly Christian nation, they were seeing those bows as dishonorable weapons because it was a coward's weapon, because if you were going to fight another man in a war, then you fought face to face, and that was an honorable way to do battle. And to deceptively take advantage or to do your killing from a distance, it's like trolling on Twitter. It's just not fair. What an archaic idea. But what a sort of still kind of true idea, right? I am not as horrified by the aimless things I say as I should be. The gossip, the backstabbing, the verbal poisonings that, oh, it's pathetic. I mean, how much do you, how often do you feel undone by the damage you inflict with your tongue or your thoughts alone? 
I mean, such bad aim, so few guides, such a struggle to stay true to you. How in the world do you fletch a tongue or feather your thoughts to keep them true? I agree with the Apostle Paul. St. Paul, I find this law at work, he writes, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For my, in my inner being, I delight in God's law, the grain of the universe, the way things are made to be. But I see another work, another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, he writes, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. They say that the branches of a yew tree can drop to the ground and take root, and so yews back then, in ancient Druid and other Christian traditions, came to stand as a symbol of death and resurrection. And sometimes, indeed, it was noted, new shoots can sprout apparently from apparently dead wood, even from the beams in ancient buildings. I thought, what a beautiful image that is. And of course, it might echo an image that you are thinking of right now from the Bible. That one that says that a shoot will come from the stump, the dead stump of Jesse. And from his roots, a branch, capital B, will bear fruit. Who will rescue me and us from the ravages of sin? from the creation-skewing, aim-destroying nature of our broken human hearts? Well, thanks be to God who delivers you through Jesus Christ, your Lord. Who through, and I never get it, I never understand this death and resurrection, this inexplicable mystery of dying on a cross, that that is the way that God does this. But who through a death on a cross, a wooden cross, arguably the worst thing we could use wood for as humanity ever, saves us, saves you, saves all of us from sin and death. Not just saves you. Now go and have a good life, and if you mess up again, you're in trouble. <laughs> but saves you to love you or let you know how much you're loved and to forgive you in the moment, but then the next moment and then the next one again and then keep on remaking you for the rest of your life, remaking you into his image and then re-aiming your entire life or that day or that relationship, and then pulling back the arrow that is you and launching you so that you can soar, fly, and hit the target. To us, 
he continues to do that saving and make this world new. Like, it's unfathomable, really. And surely he knows how much of a loser we all are. <laughs> this whole church filled with human beings. And yet, through us bringing heaven on earth to a war-torn earth. I met a lady in the toddler pool. I was there with my granddaughter yesterday and just run, ran from St. Petersburg. Her husband was at risk of being conscripted and the whole family packed up in two days, just took off, right? And so we have all these Ukrainian people who are leaving because of the horrors of the war, but we also have a lot of Russian people who don't agree with what's happening, who are running from this. And so here she is in this toddler pool with her daughter and me and my granddaughter, and we're just talking about the horrors that they lived through just to get through Europe, to get here. Like, that made new. This made new. This. All of this. All of you made new. That he includes us in that process for ourselves and through ourselves for others. It was just so beautiful to listen to this lady. And to, I don't think she told her story to many people, and she just wanted to tell her story. And to be Christ was to be there in your bathing suit in the toddler pool <laughs> listening to this heart-wrenching tale. But yeah, the weapons decommissioned. No need anymore for that kind of way of killing other people. Heaven on earth like how the prophet saw it. They will not need to gather wood from the fields in that day or cut it from the forests because they will use the weapons for fuel, declares the Sovereign Lord. That is the Word of God. Let's pray. I said let's pray, Leland. Help us to attend to your word, God. Help us to attend to you, Jesus, the word of God, the logos of God spoken into the world, taking on human flesh to model what human flesh was meant and made and will one day be. Help us to heed your words, Jesus, to follow your way, of human being, to love the last, the least, the lost, to fight against these propensities, to aim words and thoughts and actions in the wrong direction, to become people who are true because of our connection to the truth that is you, your connection to your Father, the truth of our God, so that we can live straight lives and become the people that we're made to be. Help us to yearn for that, to long for that, like, like you long for that. And make this world new and burn the weapons 
we pray. This we pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.